This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Captains for Clean Water started out as a group of fishing guides who were fed up with Florida's water management practices. The organization advocates for the elimination of harmful large-scale freshwater discharges from Lake Okeechobee to the east and west by restoring the natural flow south into the Everglades and Florida Bay. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Captains Chris Whitman and Daniel Andrews, the founders of Captains for Clean Water, to try to wrap my head around the issue. So I'm Daniel Andrews. I used to be a fishing guide. I grew up in southwest Florida. I always liked fishing more than going to school or homework or anything like that and never played any other sports. I, I did for very brief, like less than one seasons here and there. And I just, I liked being outdoors and that's kind of who I was growing up. And I ended up leaving my college scholarship to be a fishing guide because I just didn't see myself in an office. And ironically, now we're getting ready to move into our new office at Captains <laughs> for Clean Water next week. Um, so, yeah, what, what did you guide for? Were you guiding in Florida? Yeah. So when I, it's actually pretty interesting. When I first started guiding, or before I was guiding, really all I did was fly fish. That's kind of how I was brought up. I think I got my first fly rod in fourth or fifth grade. It was a LL Bean. Then I, I worked my way up, and um, no, that's that's pretty much all I did is fly fished and. I learned in about 10 days of guiding that it's really hard to be a fly fishing guide for the, uh, for, for a new, especially for a new guide in Southwest Florida, because you have people that have only trout fished before and then come down there and want to saltwater fish. And it's, uh, 
you know, with wind and everything else and having to cast 80 feet instead of eight feet, just a little, a uh, little different. So I, I uh, kind of got more into spin fishing. You know, I did everything from taking experienced anglers to beginning anglers for tarpon, snook and redfish. Did some fly fishing. I really like doing fly fishing trips, but kind of did a little bit of everything. Smart guy. What about you, Chris? What's your story? And would you mind, just for the record, saying your whole name? Sure. Uh, my name's Chris Whitman, born and raised in Florida and was also a guide there. I actually grew up on Sanibel Island, and so fishing was kind of just what you did as a as a child. Really, my, my family was in the construction industry, and, and um, I grew up in that, but my love for being on the water and in the, out, you know, in the outdoors, you know, I'd be building houses and be mesmerized by the snook swimming around the dock out back or something, you know, while I was working. And so, um, ultimately it, it led me at about 20 years old to decide that I wasn't going to take up the family business and I was going to start out on my own and be a guide. And it really just was that I wanted to spend as much time in that element as I could. And, and the more accomplished I became, um, as an angler, and the, and the farther I went throughout my guiding career, that kind of changed to getting more thrill from seeing people experience their first or significant things to them, fishing or hunting, um, that maybe I'd already done, but I got to kind of relive it through them. So, so as I progressed in my guiding career, it, the the act of guiding really became more rewarding into showing other people why I loved what I did so much. So that was a big thing. I spent a decade traveling around the country on uh, ESPN and uh, FLW Walmart Redfish Tours and did that, met a lot of great people in the industry throughout those years and decided I wanted to do something in the same realm, working with partners in the industry, but on my own schedule and do my own thing. So I uh, started my own outdoor television show in 2015 and then came uh, back home in 16 to water catastrophe, you know, in our own backyard. And at that point was still guiding in between filming shows and started talking with Daniel and um, a number of guides there. And, and it was kind of a, a wake up call that if something wasn't done to improve the path that our, our ecosystems were going down, that we weren't going to have anything to sustain guides like myself. And and I was looking at it a little bit differently than Daniel is. He was looking at it as, you know, I'm five years in and, and making a really good name for myself and gave up the scholarship. Did I screw up? Mm. You know, and to me, I was kind of looking at it as this is a, an ecosystem that had provided me a 20-year career to be very successful and so I kind of owed it to, to pay it back to that to that resource. And so we, we started just talking to people. Daniel and I took a trip to Tallahassee and um, we're, we're, came back really pissed off. And that's kind of where it all started as far as Captains for Clean Water was was just that kind of moment in time of a, of a wake-up call that something needed to be done. So tell me about this moment, and then we can start to branch off into Captains for Clean Water. So we, you know, Chris and I both grew up in Florida, so we had to deal with these bad water quality issues every single year. And pre-social media era that we grew up in, I mean, I, I kind of grew up like, you know, social media became a thing when I was in high school. And it was, I think, 
my sophomore junior year i ended up with a facebook how you got to be young then how old are you 28 it was interesting and you know we talk about it a lot you know it's like the era before mine they they react completely different to stuff on social media the generation after mine that you know was playing on their iphones throughout high school and you know was on facebook the whole time they just i think they see the world a lot differently um so that's interesting but you know, social media has been big with you know since the startup happens for clean water and you know I, I think there was so much disconnect in the state of florida Th- this issue that we're fighting for the everglades that's something that's all across south florida it's not a southwest florida it's not a southeast florida it's not a keys problem it's the same problem all over the place there was so much division you know 20 30 years of of misinformation campaigns going around telling people that you know the reason this coast gets the discharges is because the rich people are over here and you know we, we can't send the water south because uh you know x y and z just a lot of misinformation and social media was the perfect tool uh we didn't really have to do anything other than just get people talking about it and it, it just became so clear to so many people i mean we the first day we wrote a letter uh just to one of our local mayors I mean, it goes to show you how much we knew about the political landscape than thinking that you know a, a mayor you know could fix this problem that's like you know going to be 10 20 billion dollars to fix and we're going to require you know congress the state legislature the president the governor of florida all like in unison on something so we put this this letter out and you know i i use social media for business and that was pretty much it i mean i i'd, I'd probably put some pictures of my dog here and there and some steak dinners but i never really like embraced it and you know we put this letter out there and there was like a thousand people had shared it by the next morning and we're like whoa this is this is crazy and it just kept going and going and you know within a matter of weeks you know because of this this event chris was talking about the discharges that happened right in the middle of our tourist season that combined with the ability to connect all these different people, you know, Florida Bay down at the south end of the system, all the Keys guides and Miami guides that fish Florida Bay, they just had a 40,000 acre seagrass die off six months before we had the terrible discharges. That could have been prevented by sending them the water that we ended up getting. So it's like there's this broken system. Everybody had been disconnected. There hadn't been any unity from all the areas of South Florida. Just, you know, it's a four hour drive between each one of those estuaries and the people are living different different communities so i think that social media combined with the hit we got right in tourist season it was just like a wake-up call for for millions of people well, i derailed you there but go back to this tallahassee thing so what happened yeah so it's you know as fishing guides we're basically we were out of business you know for the time being it was freshwater discharges that had displaced all the fish in the area was killing seagrass, killing oysters, you know, shellfish and and crabs and stuff were literally coming out of the water onto the beaches to die because the the water had turned totally fresh. So we were out of work, so we might we figured we might as well take that time to to visit with people and then go take the issue to Tallahassee. And um, I, I wouldn't even say that. Like at first, we were just like, let's put some information out. We didn't even know that we had to go to Tallahassee at first. Yeah, yeah. If like the very, that. very first few weeks, it was it was us, you know, literally putting information out, educating ourselves, and then wanting to get information from as many people as we could. Who is us? Just the two of you? Yeah, just literally the two of us, and and you know, a handful of other fishing guides, and and we would 
you know, we'd, we'd talk to different people. We'd be at a gas pump and ask them, you know, what's, you know, what do you think about water? And what we realized is, is you'd ask 10 different people and you'd get 10 different answers. Mm. It's that still happens. It still happens. And so there was this, you know, kind of just perpetual deal for a few months where we figured out we needed to really talk to as we, we needed to get the facts. We knew there were efforts to fix these problems, but that they just had it, it wasn't happening fast enough or at all. And so we knew we had to get, we had to get those facts and educate ourselves. And then and in, in order to get other people involved, we have to get them educated. So everybody's talking out of you know a basis of, of reality and not just hearsay. And eventually, uh, we met with our, our mayor, we met with different local representatives. And, um, you know, they're like, look, this is kind of not really anything that, that we can fix, we support you, but whatever. And, and then, uh, I don't know, a, a few months in or so, Daniel and I took a trip to Tallahassee, and went and told our representatives, you know, this is what's going on, this is what this is doing to our business. And we kind of got the cold shoulder, you know, it was like, all right, yeah, your two minutes are up. Thanks for coming by and being part of the, you know, system. And it was just like this formality. And we came back and like, wait a minute, this is bullshit. Like these people work for us. They, they're here to represent us. So. Yeah. And I think the fact that we started it talking to scientists at our local university and at, you know, other organizations like Bonefish Tarpon Trust, talked to Dr. Aaron Adams there and we knew Aaron just from he used to live over on Pine Island. He's great. Yeah, he is. And it's just like starting there, starting with the scientists, they can explain to you in five minutes, you know, here's what's wrong with the system. Here's how you fix it. Here's all the science behind it. And they say that with 100% certainty. Then you go talk to the politicians. And the scientists expect a lot to be done, and they acknowledge that a lot needs to be done. The politicians are like, oh, look, we've done all this great stuff, and, you know, take your picture with us and get out of here. It's just <laughs> kind of like, you know, it's just like two different realities. Okay, so talk me through what is wrong. I'm totally ignorant. Well, I mean, I'm not. We have spoke about this before, but for a lot of people listening who, who don't know what we're talking about, tell me in the most basic terminology you can what's wrong with this system. Sure. Very, very high level, 30,000 foot. You know, nearly a century ago, the marshlands south of Lake Okeechobee that fed the Everglades, uh, the southern part of the Everglades. How big is Lake Okeechobee? It's huge. 500 and 700 square miles. Okay, so, so a big piece yeah, of water. So 700 square miles, ton of water. And then that water historically would would overflow south and feed what's called the river of grass or what the that portion of the everglades are referred to as the river of grass that natural system from the headwaters up by Kissimmee all the way down was very very slow moving and what that did for the entire system being southwest florida the east coast the everglades florida bay was it provided balance and so when we had years with a tremendous amount of rain that system was slow and would buffer the flow and then if we entered drought because that system was slow it would have water still within the system to feed to those estuaries during drought time so it nature was very effective at maintaining a balance a hundred years ago or so man in the you know in the name of progress 
um, looked at, hey, we can make this worthless swampland south of Lake Okeechobee into something productive, in, into farmland or development or whatever. And they, they started a, a series of attempts to drain the Everglades, and it was done both, both privately and, um, and by uh, government over, over a course of decades. And then they were just going to pack it with sand and build. Well, they would basically um, basically would dig a series of canals to drain the water out of the system much quicker than it currently did. Mm. So they connected what was the Caloosahatchee River, where Daniel and I live. They connected that to Lake Okeechobee in order to create an outlet for Lake Okeechobee. They then dug a series of canals um, throughout what is now the Everglades agricultural area to drain the water off of that landscape, not only water that would come from Okeechobee at the time, but also that would fall directly on that land. And um, over the course of decades, they were successful. There was a lot of attempts and failures, but uh, attempt after attempt after attempt and and levees and, and ditches and canals and all these different components later they were successful in, in draining a substantial amount of the water off of the Everglades to the point that today the Everglades receives one-third of the amount of, of water that it, that it historically received. So that, that means a lot to the ecosystem. One, it's, it's depriving that southern part of the system of, of the water that maintained the balance. But two is the timing of all that water was messed up. So the water that would feed and balance the Caloosahatchee system was was sped up. The water that would make its way slowly down from uh, the headwaters in Kissimmee was sped up. And the ability for the lake to act as a equalization basin, basically, and, and baffle those flows and overflowing, all that was was manipulated and controlled. So the balance of the entire system is what was thrown off. And and I think that's something that Daniel and I recognized as, as we started building our efforts with Captains for Clean Water is that we looked at things through the eyes of a fisherman or an outdoorsman, and that's not just what's happening right here around my boat. It's what's happening, you know, system-wide that affects what's happening in front of your boat. And so we looked at it as what was wrong with the system and and what needed to be done to fix the system not looking at very regionally you know so we weren't the the answer and it really came from the scientists is is not that the the question is not how do we stop discharges it's how do we restore balance back to the system by doing so you will stop the discharges to our area you'll also provide water to the everglades where it's needed so that's kind of the 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 process that happened you know in the early 1900s was to to create jobs and farmland and and all these things during this this period in 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 our country where stuff like that was just looked at as as progress and now when, when you change the balance to a system to an ecosystem it doesn't just overnight say hey that's it's i'm sick this is i'm degrading it it takes time and so here we are 80 years later and the writings on the wall that those changes that were made are progressively having a greater and greater negative impact on 
those systems that were changed. I'm assuming we're talking about fish health. It's it starts at the the base of the food chain for us. You know, and and it's you know, I think if you look at any environmental issue we have in the world right now, you know, almost all of them are man-made and all the solutions are fundamentally pretty simple. Put the system back the way it was, if you can, and the problems will most likely go away. Now, and to your point, a lot of them, it's it's going to be significantly more challenging to get back. But um, with the Everglades, it's it's it is pretty simple. Fundamentally, pretty simple. Yeah, you know, as Chris said, these dams and dikes and ditches that were all put in completely changed the way water flows through our system. And anytime you change freshwater flows to estuaries you'll see changes you know it'd be like if we went to your favorite steelhead river and took two-thirds of the water that, that flowed through it in the course of a year and held it in a reservoir and waited till it rained you know in the summertime and then just dumped the gates and you know it, it would you wouldn't know what to do you probably probably wouldn't even be safe to fish on the river with you know with all that water coming down it and that's essentially what's happened in florida and you know we're seeing that from the very headwaters of the Everglades all the way down to Florida Bay to the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, what we're seeing fundamentally is only two things are happening. Either too much or not enough fresh water is going, making its way into the estuary. So that's one of the things. The other thing is we have a nutrient pollution problem. And that comes from agriculture, from urban um, depending where you are in the system, uh, the Northern Everglades agriculture is the predominant land use. So that's naturally, you know, that's where a lot of that's coming from. And those two problems, you, there are projects that, that, that kind of do fix both of them at the same time. You can clean the water and store it, but you know, a lot of that pollution we're going to be dealing with for a long time. And that's why it's important that we get on it now and stop adding and, you know, stop adding more pollution, stop adding more nutrients and work on ways that we can get rid of the, the pollutants that are already existing in the in the waterways and in the bottom. But the, the freshwater flow thing is something that, uh, you know, if you're to separate the two problems, if all the nutrients were completely gone and it was pure distilled water that was entering the system, we would still have a huge problem. The, the discharges on the Caloosahatchee and the St. Lucie, they drop the salinity so much in the estuary that it kills seagrass, it kills oysters, and our seagrasses in Florida, they take years or decades to, to grow. It's not something that they don't seed. You know, it's, it's predominantly through roots that they, they spread out. Uh, when, the, when we lose that seagrass, even if a boat nicks the bottom with a prop, it can, it can take years for that to come back. So when you start killing huge you know, grass flats, you know, tens of thousands of acres of seagrass, it just adds more nutrients to the water. You just end up in this, this disastrous cycle and it, 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 it will flush any game fish out of the area. There, there won't be, you know, there won't be bait, there won't be forage. So they're just, they're gone. Do they die or do they leave? Well, it depends. You know, it, it's the small critters like the shrimp, the crabs, the, the little glass minnows, those are going to die. And just because they can't swim away from the tides, mm -hmm. the large adult game fish, you know, an adult snook or tarpon, um, they're fine through that. I mean, they'll, they'll even, you know, I've even seen them kind of foraging on the fish that are dying from the discharges, but you have to look at it big picture. And, and, you know, it's all that grass would have produced so much bait, so much young game fish that the next year and the year after and the year after is where you're really going to, you know, see the consequences of that. 
So the, the adult fish, they'll survive. They might not be as healthy as they would have been, but it's really the long term. You know, it, it's the amount of habitat. Our fish populations anywhere are directly related to the amount of habitat. The more good habitat, the more fish you have. Yeah, that's definitely it's it's um, the concern you're asking. You know, is it is it fish or or the it's it's definitely the habitat. The fish will come back if if there's good healthy habitat. If you have good water quality and healthy habitat, it doesn't take long at all for fish to come back in. Daniel and I were just catching tarpon off of the Sanibel Beach in the exact same spot that one year earlier there was a 20-plus foot whale shark washed up on the beach. So the fish and, and animals like that can be resilient if the habitat's there to sustain them. When you lose oyster beds or grass beds, grass flats, that's something that takes decades to recover. And as a fisherman, you know that you know if you, if you remove a link out of that natural system, especially at the bottom, it's going to affect the entire system. You know, you, you, you a chain remove a link out of the, yeah, the food chain and, and, it, and, it, and you'll see that effect throughout the system. You just may see the effect the year after or two years after or three years after. And that's, that's something that we're able to, to understand. And, that, and I think that's, a, that's one of our strong suits with our organization is to be able to take sometimes um, the, the jarbled language of scientists and, and put it into kind of terms that, that we would relate to. Yeah, everyday the, people. But I guess the point is that it's not something that mm. looking at fish numbers, you're, going, you're not going to get a real-time answer on the effect. Your adult fish may be able to swim back and then a year later come back. But if the grass beds that housed the fry from those adult fish – are no longer there now the fish that will be the adult fish in three years or five years you all of a sudden are missing this huge generational gap in your fish and so you will see you will see a major decline in that and it just may be you know two years or three years later and and it's also something that looking at it holistically system-wide is if we fix the problem we then allow the habitat to regenerate and regrow and recover if if we looked at it in a regional aspect of well there's a bunch of fish that got killed so let's restock the fish there's still no habitat to to support the restocking of the fish so it's it's kind of a uh, the point of it is that if you're not if you're not looking at solutions that are going to benefit everything from the habitat to the fish then you're looking at the wrong solutions we want to see things that are going to make the system as a whole healthy whether that's for fish that we pursue as a sport or benthic life that you can't see except for under a microscope or birds and mammals and sea turtles and things like that i mean when we were experiencing um, the toxic blue green algae and fish kills in 2018, just last year, you could drive down the interstate, I-75, which is probably, what, 10 miles from the coast? And there was hundreds of egrets and wading birds that were just dropping out of the sky dead 
it was like an apocalypse. It was literally from Punta Gorda to Naples. There was a stretch just inside of where we had all these water issues that there, it looked like somebody went through and, and mowed down flocks of egrets along oh the interstate. God. It was insane. And that blue-green algae was a result of this <coughs> imbalanced system? Yeah, so the blue-green algae, it is it, – it, you can find it naturally in lakes, um, but we're seeing insane blooms of it, and that's completely a result of, of the amount of nutrients in there. Some scientists – also attributed some of it to climate change. You know, it's, we've had a couple really warm summers, but it, it's it's really you know it's the nutrients that are the driving factor there. Heat plus nutrients equals algae. So you know when we have these really long days in the middle of summer and that stuff stagnates, it, it's you know it's, at one point last year Lake Okeechobee was ninety five percent covered in the stuff. Oh, so if you take a normal year, you know if you were to rewind the clock a hundred hundred and fifty years or even really less than that when there were not discharges from Lake Okeechobee, assuming we still had that many nutrients in the water, Southwest Florida would not have gotten and, and Southeast Florida would not have gotten those algae blooms. Again, it's the two problems, the freshwater and the, the nutrients, but our estuary was at a very, very low salinity level last summer when all this was going on. And, that allowed because that cyanobacteria only grows in fresh water. As soon as it hits salts, it salt it dies. Now it also releases a bunch of toxins when it dies. So that's all happening in our estuary. That was completely man-made, completely the fault of of, of water management in Florida over the last hundred years. Yeah, and you had you had this issue of of an algae bloom, toxic algae bloom on Okeechobee because of excess nutrients. You know, at the same time. We received months of uh, discharges where we were getting what five to six thousand cubic feet per second of water coming from the lake down the Clusahatchee River. With that water came the algae, and, as, and because of that water, the estuary became a place that it could live. Exactly. Without that volume of water, blue green algae can't live in the southern Clusahatchee and Pine Island Sound because it's too salty. But it was so much volume of water that it had moved that brackish salinity line all the way out into Pine Island Sound. And for months, that that blue-green algae was able to sit in low salinity water and, and just, you know, multiply and become millions times more toxic than it got to where it was so thick it was like guacamole floating on the surface of the water. Oh, that's disgusting. So what's the solution? So to keep it really simple, um, you fix the water problem and you fix the nutrient problem and all this stuff goes away. How do you fix the water problem? So the freshwater runoff issue, either the too much or not enough freshwater issue, that is, number one, this is a problem all throughout the world, but, but just talking about the Everglades area, uh, you have to restore the, the function of what the Everglades was 100 years ago. And the Everglades um, only does three things, only used to do three things. Store water, it was just, you know, the whole thing was like a sponge. So when it rained, all that ground would saturate with water, it would percolate down in the aquifers. Um, when we put the canals in and we drained all that, we lost the storage function. The next is conveyance. It used to be a river that, that flowed from just south of where Orlando is today. 
all the way down to the, the Florida Keys. Um, we, we've stopped that now. There's barriers to flow. There's there's a road in the way that, that we've recently, um, the, the state and the federal government has put bridges under. So, so some of these obstacles are we're, we're making progress on, but there are other dams and barriers that we need to get the, the removal of them accelerated. Uh, and then the last thing is, is treatment. It, you know, a, a wetland um, sequesters nutrients. So if you have nutrient-rich polluted water coming through a wetland, it will come out of the wetland cleaner than it went in. And that's, again, that's true of anywhere in the world. You know, if you have a nutrient issue, the more wetlands you can put in there, the more it'll it'll sequester that. So that's that's Everglades restoration in, in a minute, in two minutes. Um, but what that looks like on the ground is is projects. You know, storage is going to be deep water reservoirs. You know, you're not, you, the Everglades is half the size it used to be. So, you know, it all used to be 10 to 18 inches deep. It, there's going to be areas that are deeper now. There's going to be deep water reservoirs that can, you know, hold a bunch of water through the dry season to provide the fresh water that the Everglades needs. Wait, these are man-made? They're going to be man-made, yes. So these are not in place yet? Um, there, so, so there's some components of Everglades restoration, uh, very piecemeal, you know, stuff that's happened over the last 20 years, uh, very little compared to what needs to happen. Our focus, you know, I think our, our biggest policy thing we've, we've really ever gotten involved in was uh, one project in particular, the Everglades Reservoir. Uh, it, it was... Um, Is this what I saw when you guys went to Parliament? Do you call it that in this country? Congress. Congress. Yeah, okay. we call it Congress. Yeah. We call it the dog and pony show. Sure, sure. <laughs> Is that the one that I saw that I saw you guys go to? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was one of them. That was one of our main things. You seem to have the reins in that show. We'll talk we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. How many yeah. dams would you like to see out? Well, it, it's so the, the first of all the dams look different than what you're imagining. Okay. Um if if we took you to some of the um they're they're very long. You know, imagine Tens of miles, some of them 60, 80 miles. Like you know. long canals? Yep. So most, most of the dams have a, a long canal that runs along. That way the water hits. Our water moves very slow in Florida. You're used to, you know, swinging, you know, spay, <laughs> yeah. spay flies through huge runs. No, but when I drove from, like, when I saw you guys, yeah. I yep. drove from Lake Okeechobee to Orlando, okay. and I saw a lot of those yeah. long, yeah. they seem to go on forever. Yeah, yeah, and you'll see they dig the canal and then pile the dirt next to it. Yeah, and yeah, so I saw that. So they have a, a canal and a... In a, de- a dam. So though that's what I was seeing. That's yeah. yes. That, that's okay. all part of that where they're they're moving water and, and shedding you know shed, putting water where they want and mm. and the projects that Daniel's talking about like the Everglades Agricultural Area Reservoir, which is made to store water to provide water to the Everglades in a drought. Th- those projects are components of the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, which was a, a series of projects put into place into law in the year 2000 um, that was made to restore the timing and the delivery of water to the Everglades to mimic the natural system. You know, we're not going to get back to where we were, you know, we're not going to bulldoze Miami and turn it back into Everglades. We're not going to, you know, but what we can do is, is, is make the timing and delivery of the water mimic what it did naturally. And those, projects within Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, which is known as SERP. Um, those projects in unison are all components that are made to, to fix that. And it's it's a massive series of projects. It's actually the largest natural restoration 
project ever undertaken in the world. Whoa. Yes. How many are there, though? So of the, the Everglades Restoration Plan, of SERP, there are 68 projects, 68 components to it. Um, it, it was doesn't seem that intimidating when you think about it. So what's no. what's so hard about 68? So, well, that's a good question. Um, again, they're fundamentally pretty simple, politically fairly challenging. Um, the, it was originally envisioned as a 30-year project. You know, it's going to take 30 years to, to do this. It was signed into law in the year 2000. So I was in fourth grade. And we're 19 years into it. And... Yes, so many of the projects we've completed. How many? Zero. <gasps> okay, so. it's starting to piece together now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it's it's all it all comes down to lack of lack of funding, lack of political will. And uh, and was nobody paying attention to it? Is that how they were getting away with this? Well, yeah. I mean, politics. When you have any, I think any time when you have special interests involved with anything, there's there's an element of distraction that goes on. You know, it, it's it's kind of like oh we do this, ooh, you know, shiny object here, shiny object there. And, you know, we end up chasing around, you know, doing more studies, you know, oh, this came, let's do another study on that. And, you know, before we know it, we're 20 years down the road and, you know, multiple economic disasters relating to environmental disasters later. And now we're kind of like, wait, what, why did we, why are we doing that? Why are we dragging our feet? And, you know, it, politics, whatever is the, the hot topic, that day is what they're going to work on. And I think just as Floridians for so long, we had faith or, you know, I don't know if faith is the right word, but had a, we assumed that maybe our policymakers, you know, they say they're doing all these great things. Maybe they were doing it. Um, but no, they haven't, they have not done anywhere near what should have been done over the last 20 years. What's the excuse when and you ask them? It, oh, it's, it's any number of, of things, but you know, something that is, that's a significant point here is the way that the system had been manipulated and changed was extremely effective in creating massive um, agricultural industrial agriculture areas south of Lake Okeechobee. That area is is primarily uh, sugar industry and sugar cane. And of of how many hundreds of acres are in the or, or thousands of acres are in the EAA. It's there's, there's about four hundred thousand. Okay, four so four hundred thousand acres in the EAA, and and the majority of that is is sugarcane. And of of that four hundred thousand acres, primarily um, two large companies that that hold you know all the different whatever the different farms. So um, you're looking at at two companies that um, the current system of water management works excellent for them when we're in a drought they have all the water that they need because lake okeechobee was held water in it and held artificially high and then when tons of rains came they were able to drain their lands and keep their crops perfectly dry and because the lake was artificially high it would then get dumped onto our coast and so what happens is you have a system that for for the system itself is very broken, but for this powerful industrial sugar industry worked perfectly. They um, have done tremendous efforts um, throughout you know decades, not only to influence policymakers to keep 
the system working to their benefit, but also to put out a significant amount of of PR um, about why what they're doing isn't bad or, or you know, that something else is the problem. And this what do com- they think is the problem? Well, they 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 just or what do they they, they know what the problem is, but yeah. but you know they don't like the solution. So um, what what the sugar industry tends to do, and it's it's really weird for me to think about. I go, if you're if you're sugar farmer, why do you need PR campaigns that are in the tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars? Because you're just trying to keep the public quiet so that your deals with your politicians can continue. And the the actions between special interests and elected officials, whether we're talking about industrial sugar farming or opioids or whatever it is, those arrangements only work when the public isn't paying attention and the special interests can influence and get their way. It sounds like for 19 years they weren't paying attention. Exactly, they weren't. And 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 something that has that that the sugar industry's taken um, taken advantage of is they'll look at these kind of band aid proposed solutions that someone might see a benefit in their backyard and think, yes, this is great, and they'll feed those and push for those so that the representatives are saying, okay, well. We know the Clusahatchee is getting these discharges, so we're going to propose these deep injection wells. And instead of sending the water out your river, we're going to inject it underground under the aquifer. So the, 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 the politicians in southwest Florida, who their constituents are mad about discharges to Sanibel, those constituents could be like, oh, okay, this sounds good, less discharges. The way we see it looking at the whole system is, that water is not making it to the Everglades in Florida Bay. So you're spending millions and millions of dollars to throw water away underground, and it's not going it, to it's, – it's, Florida Bay is dying because it needs the water. So the, the special interests have been very successful in putting out bits of kind of misinformation or – Distractions. Distractions of, hey, here's a, here's a solution or here's a problem. Um, you know, oh, it's all septic tanks. It's all septic tanks. It, you know, there's septic tanks are, are a problem with nutrient load, uh, primarily nitrogen, but septic tanks don't have anything to do with the Everglades getting a third of the water it naturally did. And a lot of the algae blooms that, that we see are a result of, of phosphorus. So that's one thing that, that in this case, the sugar industry has has been successful in years past of putting creating narrative that then gives the elected officials that that are acting on their behalf an out optically to the public and and I think that's something that we've seen a lot of change in the last four or five years yeah and it, it it's ultimately it comes down to the individual politicians and how they're going to handle it i mean it, it's it's a it's a tough fight i mean we we've got the way we push for change is by getting a lot of people to reach out to their policymakers um, the sugar industry and really all special interests they use lobbyists and they're essentially they raise a bunch of money contribute to political candidates of their choice and then interests can go in and hire them 
to go back to the policymakers and say, hey, do this. And I don't know if it's like this all over the world, but I mean, definitely here what we see is when a politician gets in office, they spend 90% of their time trying to figure out how they're going to get elected again or, yeah. or climb the ladder. Mm-hmm. So they, they become obsessed over, you know, how can I, how can I stay in power and you know, how can I do this? And they've got these lobbyists, you know, shoving checks, you know, in their, in their jacket pockets every time they go have dinner with them and, you know, take them to all these, you know, bougie wine cocktail parties. And, you know, it's, they're, they're putting all this money in them and, you know, it's, it's like, they're saying, oh yeah, you know, this is what's going on with the water here. We just drill all these holes in the ground and pump all the water underground and problem will be gone. Don't worry about it. You know, that's what the lobbyists are pushing for. And if you float that same idea of drilling holes, 300, 3000 feet underground and pumping polluted water below our drinking water supply to scientists at universities, they'll look at you like you have three heads. Okay. So now I'm really lost. So that's not a solution. So what is the solution? So it's the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan. It's a series of reservoirs, flowways, and filter marshes. Essentially, you know, the deep water storage for holding the water in the drought, um, the filter marshes for cleaning, you know, it takes the nutrients out of the water. And then the flowways just really removing those dams. And I, I hate to use the word dam. I mean, that's what they are. That's the way we see them. But It's a dirt berm. Yeah. Six to eight feet high and miles and miles long. It's yeah. not a dam as you would yeah. picture and what it the, on a What river. they do is they just plow down, you know, and part of these part of these plans that are out now, the Central Everglades plan that's already been authorized, just waiting on federal funding, which is what our priority is right now. It, they just kind of push over pieces of the dam. They put pump stations here and there just to try to get the water flowing back to where it used to flow. Um, it's been diverted and, and, and it's, it's been held up in the Everglades for so long. You, know, you have some areas that are drowning, other areas that are bone dry. So it's just a matter of, you know, some hydrologic changes. The plan's there. The plan's in the books. The scientists have signed on and it's been authorized by Congress, you know, and now that's kind of brings us to where we are today. We have really one project um, that the Central Everglades plan that includes a reservoir, removes barriers to flow, and some more treatment marsh. Um, so it kind of it's it's like the core of Everglades restoration summarized in this one suite of projects. It'll cut our discharges by sixty percent. Okay, what would that cost? Um, the cost on that from the federal government is is probably going to be around two billion dollars. But. That's you have to look at, you know, Everglades restoration overall started out as a $10 billion plan. And because inflation and everything else for the the last 20 years, now it's a $20 billion project. So we've already roughly doubled, you know, and those numbers are are not concrete. You know, nobody's gone through and, you know, planned the whole thing out as far because it's, you know, all that's time sensitive. So but current estimates are 16, 20 billion dollars. But I mean, just just this time we've wasted has cost us a lot more, but if you if you look at you know roughly ten percent of the overall cost of this will fix sixty percent of the estuary problems. There's a huge ROI there, you know, for politicians, and that that's the argument we've made. You know, you have to do all these things, so why not pick the ones that are going to keep people happy, keep our waters clean? That the science is all done. You just have to just put the money to it, and that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, it's it's identifying the projects that are going to have the greatest return on investment and do those first. Yeah. And there's been a long, um, you know, politicians 
will always they're 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 just like water. They follow the path of least resistance. So if there's you know a bunch of lobbyists saying, "Hey, we'd rather you work on these projects," and and we're not up there, and and people aren't up there saying, "Hey, no, let's do the ones that actually matter." then they're going to follow the path of least resistance. And mm-hmm. for so long, that's just been, you know, work on these ancillary projects that have minimal, if any, benefits to our estuaries, just so you can send out a mailer at the end of the year and say, oh, look at all the wonderful things that I accomplished this year in Congress. But that that mindset doesn't take into account, like, having, like, like you have to state your metric of success ahead of time. Your metric of success has to be, we want to fix the water, not we want to put $200 million into it just to say we did something. It sounds like business. Like yeah. Poorly run business. Yeah. So we kind of just dove straight into this. Let's get back to captains for clean water. So sure. you guys got frustrated with an issue and you decided we're going to start a. No, we, we were just frustrated. I'd, I'd say, and we were mostly frustrated how uninformed people were. And our initial goal was just, you know, let's let's have a couple meetings, let's produce some, you know, just some papers that we can hand to fishing guides so that way they can tell their clients. That way there's not misinformation going around. A couple of weeks later, we had, you know, a group of friends and um, local attorneys in town that, that helped us um, just kind of with all the, the legal side of things. And they said, you need to set up a 501c3. And we're like, a, a what? <laughs> yeah, you know, it started out as... A year as, of paperwork. Is like, <laughs> like Daniel said, it was, it was us just wanting to educate people to eliminate some of the misinformation in hopes that then people would be educated, they would be engaged on, on trying to push to get it fixed. And as we started that process and started doing that, we started getting this unexpected unintended traction it wasn't like we started and we're like we're going to create this movement and fix this that was the farthest thing from it but we started getting more and more people reaching out to us we started getting you know talking to more scientists we started having the media then reach out to us about our efforts it started getting known to the to the public that we were traveling to Tallahassee and Washington, D.C. to try to get this fixed. And that all happened very organically and, and naturally. You know, Daniel and I have talked about the, the first time that we decided we were going to call a meeting and talk about these issues and what we needed to do and what needed to be done and what role the public and people like ourselves played in that. And we decided we were going to invite, you know, our fishing guide buddies, just our circle of of co-workers i guess you would call it and um the the folks at bass pro shops let us gave us a conference room to use and um so we put out a thing we had made a facebook page and we put out a thing you know captains for clean water we're going to have a meeting tonight and talk about this and we expected a, a dozen or two fishing guides to show up and over 300 people showed up there's a line out the door what? all the all the media stations showed up and it was kind of like all of a sudden, <laughs> there we were. And um, just to put like a time perspective on that, that was within three weeks of us starting. Yeah, I mean, it was very yeah. quickly. That's incredible. Yeah. And what year was that? That was 16. 2016, yeah. Yep. Whoa. Early 2016. And, and so, it was just the two of you at that point? Yeah. I mean, we had we had a handful of other fishing guides um, that initially were, were helping us because we weren't 
a thing. We were, it was just us. We were just captains and we wanted clean water. So we had a handful of, of fishing guides. And, and initially we, all of us thought that, Hey, we're going to take up these issues in between running our charters and going about our normal day-to-day life. And what happened very quickly, as you see in three weeks time, all of a sudden we're kind of put out in front of, of this, this effort where we could actually affect change and the, and the public was ready and willing to engage that it it very quickly turned into a full-time job. I mean, Mm -hmm. where we anticipated doing it on weekends, it was, 20 hour days, very little sleep and working it out of our homes and stuff like that. And Daniel and I are very fortunate that, that our wives now, my fiance at the time, he had literally just gotten married, um, were, I don't know how, but were supportive of us doing this. I mean, for the first year we did it on our own dime on our own time it's a common story on the show and in this industry wives are yeah i mean and literally like my fiance at the time was working three jobs to pay all our bills because Mm -hmm. we had no income so naturally we had a a big group of of guides um or a small group of guides that were kind of with us in this but it's not sustainable you know they had mouths to feed and they kind of were like you know hey guys we are 100 percent in I've got to run trips, whatever. And, um, and Daniel and I, you know, had a pretty serious conversation one day of, look, we got to, we can't just like get our feet wet. We're either, we're either going to have to dive head, head first and go all in and, and seize this opportunity that we see with the public for the first time ready to, to engage and, and try to change policy or, um, cross our fingers and and you know it was obvious that we weren't going to be effective as being part-time fishing guides and we weren't going to be effective being part-time activists for for the Everglades so um, that's really when we 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 started talking with some of our friends who are attorneys and businessmen and and, and key people in our community that if we're going to go ahead and, and kind of take this leap of faith that we were going to have to get organized and and be an organization. We couldn't just be Chris and Daniel roaming around trying to change things. So we're very fortunate, uh, I think, just in the people we had within our circles that helped us utilize their strengths to, like Daniel said, we didn't know what a 501c3 was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we sought out a lot of guidance from, you know, people like Dr. Aaron Adams to people at universities to, you know, to professionals in our community that we respected to make sure we were set up properly so that we could keep up with the momentum of, of change that we had the ability to, to move forward. And, and, and we've been very fortunate. I think it was just the kind of the timing was there. It was something that with the state of the water, the people saw the writing on the wall with the use of of technology um, and social media like Daniel was talking about. I mean, 10 years earlier, what we um, have been part of wouldn't be possible. Yeah, this is a situation where you really do need to have social media. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the ability to spread messaging very effectively and um, economically you know, I mean, to reach, we can, we can reach, we had one program this year that in 
three days reached almost three million people. Whoa! And to do that outside of social media with mailers or television ads, or I mean, it would it, it wouldn't be able to do it. And so that's where dollar for dollar, if you're in this PR war with special interests who are wanting to keep the system operating the way it is, they've got tens of millions of dollars to throw at it. And we can't compete with that, but we can now compete with that because of the power of, of social media um, and, and doing things like we're sitting here doing today and, and educating more people on, on you know, the, the plights of the Everglades, um, the importance of the Everglades. And, and to us, that importance is and that value is, is priceless. Um, you know, we constantly are having to put it into a quantifiable number when we're talking to policymakers because they want to know, hey, if we're going to spend $2 billion on this, you have to tell them, well, you know, the Everglades alone generates over $100 million a year. You know, the tourism industry in Florida is $109 billion a year. And if if there's bad parts, it affects the entire state. You know, when people are hearing on national news that the water's not safe to go in or fish are dying – guess what? It, they may have been planning to go to a place that's not affected, but they're not going to take the chance when it's their one vacation of the year and they're going to go somewhere else. So we're constantly having to to put and measure the economic value of Everglades restoration to the economic costs of it. Um, but the reality of it is that the, the value of doing it far outweighs the investment of doing it. And and I think it's a, a, a crucial part of that that, you know, something significant is half of our supporters at Captains for Clean Water are outside of Florida. And we actually have supporters in all 50 states as well as some other countries. And that's a significant thing because to me, like I look at it in reverse, and, and Daniel and I have had this conversation a lot, is we look at examples like the pebble mine in Alaska. That is something that we feel very, very passionately about. Neither one of us have ever been to Alaska. Neither one of us have ever fished Bristol Bay, but we would like to. And, and the Everglades are that same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have ever set foot in the Everglades to care about and understand the value of places like that. And so um, I think that's a, a significant piece of that puzzle to us seeing this overwhelming amount of momentum and support to what we're doing um, from across the country and and industry wide throughout our industry, you know we've in we're we're three and a half years old. I mean the organization is an infant in terms of of organizations that do this stuff. But to see that in those three and a half years we've had these industry leading brands like Yeti and Sims and Costa and Patagonia and Hell's Bay, and I mean, you then the list goes on and Orvis, on and on. C Orvis, Sea Deck, I mean, yeah, yeah the, the list, yeah. And everybody's reached out and wanted to get involved in some way. Yeah, and so that's that's a significant part of that. I think that they they can see that it's not only an investment that is uh, important to the future of their business, but it's an investment that um, that their consumer cares about, whether they've been to the Everglades or not. Yeah, and just to kind of go back on what you said there, Chris, 
you, we talked about investment. I know the the figure we're talking about two billion dollars. I kind of caught you off guard with that. I think, and it, it seems like a lot, and it, and it is a lot. But the, the, so the Florida Board of Realtors did a study back in 2013, 2014. Uh, there's a four to one return on investment on Everglades restoration just to local economies. So that two billion dollars will turn into eight billion dollars for the for the local economy, and that doesn't even touch on the just the the value of the Everglades to each and every one of us, you know, that whether it's the first tarpon you grab there or, you know, the first bird you see or, you know, just just going down with a friend and, and checking out the park, uh, th- that's not accounted for in there. So it, it's, I mean, even just the four to one return on investment, it, it's it should be a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer to us. It's a no-brainer to everybody I've met, you know, I guess except for some politicians. But, I mean, it, it's, come on, where, where else can you find somewhere that you can put that much money, billions of dollars in and, and get a four to one return on investment and protect one of the most badass places in the world. Yeah. Well, how many of, how many people are on your staff now or in your organization? So we have a team of five that's quickly growing right now. Um, we just, we're bringing on some more people kind of as we speak, um, moving in, moving into our new office. We got a little bit more capacity in here. Talk to me about what I saw with you guys going to Congress and that shit show of a meeting, what <laughs> so, happened there? So um, that was water management district. Okay, so yeah. so the one that you saw was actually um, the South Florida Water Management District, and so the watersheds in Florida are kind of broken up into regions, and each region has a water management district that manages the water. The Everglades, the 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 the, the agency that manages. The Everglades watershed is the South Florida Water Management District, and the governing board of that agency. So, and they're, they're also they're responsible for Everglades restoration. There's two agencies: Army Corps of Engineers and the South Florida Water Management District. So they're they're responsible for managing all the water on a day to day basis, as well as overseeing this multi billion dollar restoration project. So which Very projects important. should be implemented? You know, so. You've got this agency that literally holds all the marbles to fixing the Everglades. And that governing board that, that governs that agency, which the agency ta- has taxing authority. It can tax the public to do its work. So the, the people who sit on that governing board, that's a, a very powerful position. In fact, you're, you're sitting over decisions that are made by an agency that can tax us and that are, it's going to ultimately be responsible for the success or failure of Everglades restoration. Well, those governing board members are appointed by the governor, and those seats are usually staggered um, to where there's not always 100% turnover. There's never been 100% turnover. And over the course of decades, industrial sugar industry, again, very successful at utilizing their influence to get people on the governing board who are sympathetic to seeing the management, the water managed in their benefit. Mm-hmm. And so what we experienced was, this was one of the agencies, we'd go to Tallahassee a lot, we'd go to D.C. a lot, but the South Florida Water Management District headquartered in West Palm Beach was actually where we were the most and these monthly meetings. And it became very obvious that we would go in in public comment would be for an hour and a half and and the governing board would intentionally run the agenda long 
in hopes that the public wouldn't stay. And then the public would comment, and literally you could have 95% of the public say, we want you to do A. Or even 100%. Or 100% say, we want you to do A. And the governing board would then turn right around, call for a vote, and vote B unanimously. And it was so apparent that they were crooked and that it was a corrupted system that had been in place. And and we started to see, well, no wonder Everglades restoration is stalling. We don't have, we've got this agency that, that holds the pieces and the, in the tools and they're not taking action because they're compromised. And then you've got politicians that are looking at every other thing. So um, we had a, an instance there where over the course of a couple of those meetings, two months, um, we were told some information. We were told that, you know, this, this land that the Everglades Reservoir was going to be built on, which we had just got done fighting for for the entire last year, this land that the state of Florida owned um, was being leased back to sugar, to grow sugar on it, that it was that lease was expiring. And literally 12 hours before governing board meeting, um, they added an agenda item there to renew the lease on this land that we knew we needed and that the governor had intended on, uh, you know, implementing this was, this was a, what he ran. I said, I'm going to make this happen in my, in my term. So we're at this meeting. We're going, you, you've got to be kidding me that this is what's happening. How many of you were there? Um, there was probably... 60 to 70 people there. Wow. So still a lot of people. Yeah. And Daniel and I um, were, you know, there on behalf of, of captains and our supporters. And so we were told um, this had to be done in order to expedite construction. So by renewing this, we were going to get to go ahead and move forward with clearing some of that land right now today that was growing sugar on it is part of the negotiation. Hey, if you let it, if you renew this lease, We'll let you go ahead and clear these 500 acres to store rock on to, to get ready for the staging process for this reservoir. Even though you just signed that land into a what 20-year lease. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> so um, we're going, wait, this just doesn't add up. Why wouldn't we just wait three more months and the lease would be vacated and we can store all the rock wherever we want? So it didn't add up. So. We got some information through some of our sources that had um, that had gotten rental records for heavy equipment for that area um, from the district, and I got with one of our board members, and, and he gave me use of his plane and, and went up and flew over the site where this agency, the Water Management District, was claiming that they did this in order to start prog- process sooner, and because they renewed this lease, now we were already under construction. Well... They invited the media out and showed them, you know, we're doing this. Well, it, we went, we, we saw it and it's like, oh, they got bulldozers. They're already doing construction. We're going BS. That's not, that's not what's happening. So two weeks after that, I fly over the site and literally nothing had been done except for the work that was done on that single day that the media was, that there. The media was there. They literally brought out two D8 bulldozers and and cleared which cost eighty two thousand dollars to the taxpayer just to rent the two bulldozers. They rented those two bulldozers from a company that they probably have some kind of connection with. Eighty two thousand dollars for two bulldozers. They cleared one hundred and twenty acres of land. 
It was, I mean, it was literally nothing. There was no equipment there. It was, it was a total PR stunt. So when we went and to the next meeting to kind of voice our opinion about that, um, we had received um, some internal email documents through public information request that was between the water management district's attorneys and the leasee, Florida Crystals. And, and there was this obvious long-term negotiation that had gone on back and forth with them where the district only gave the public 12 hours notice. So they had been doing these deals and only gave the public 12 hours notice to, to catch it. Well, in that document, there was a statement from one of the general counsel for the district saying, I tweaked some of the language here so it doesn't appear like we're doing crystals, Florida crystals, a favor, and it reads more like we have the land and we need to build the project. And so um, that was pretty damning. We literally called it out to their faces at, at that next meeting. We publicly called for the resignation of the entire board. Um, Congressman Brian Mast had testified and asked them to not vote on that issue in the prior meeting. Directly on directly behalf of the governor Directly on behalf of, of governor of governor-elect at the time, DeSantis, saying, I want time to review this, these terms. Just postpone the vote until next month, 30 days. And they ignored all those requests and voted unanimously to go through. So I think at that point, the current governing board saw the writing on the wall and they knew they were basically dead men walking and they they just were trying to it was like it was literally like they were trying to push through as much as they could in their final hours um yeah. and, and i mean look i'm i'm i got this pulled up on my phone here it's a new york times article we could go on about this all day about the specifics did they resign yes the the new governor second day in office we were with him he's he demanded their resignations Several refused, and they all ended up resigning within a week. And it, and to to, to so the the irony in that transition was one that's never happened before. As I said, that that the governing board has never been replaced one hundred percent at the same time. Two, when we were there testifying and questioning their actions, we had uh, uh, one of our board members and a, a Sanibel City Councilman Chauncey Goss was there testifying on behalf of his community that he represents in Sanibel and saying, you know, basically we're questioning you. And, and the, the feedback from the board was basically, who are you, you, who are you to question our decisions? And, and Chauncey made a statement that that day that you, you do work for us and you spend our taxpayers are funding your agency and so basically, how can you sit up there and say that we don't have a right to question your actions? And second day of Governor DeSantis taking office, he called for the resignation of, of the entire board. Some of them tried to hold out, didn't last very long. And today, Chauncey Goss, that guy who was sitting there pleading for them to listen to some sense and explain themselves, is now the chairman of the governing board and sitting on the opposite side of 
that pulpit. So whoa, pretty yeah, pretty crazy. Sorry, go back to your yeah. article. You're no, so I think this is this, I think this is really important. That is incredible. So, wow, I'm reading this. Uh, it's a New York Times article. The, the, it's titled "Land Purchased to Help Restore the Everglades" by John H. Cushman Jr. Uh, December seventh, nineteen ninety seven. Uh, starts out, Clinton administration in the state of Florida agreed today to buy more than 50,000 acres of sugarcane fields in the outskirts of Everglades National Park, the latest step towards rescuing the endangered ecosystem from polluted runoff. That same land is the land that Chris was just talking about with the lease. 1997, so, so twenty over 20 years, and those games that we just kind of gave you a summary have been played every single day for the last... 22 years that that's been going on and you you wonder why we're 20 years into the everglades restoration plan and we haven't completed any of the projects it's because of bullshit like that that's happened happened again happened again hasn't been exposed you know people that 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 have other interests get away with what they've been getting away with nobody asks questions politicians keep taking their money and yeah, that's why Florida's water is what it is. It's like a House of Cards episode. It's it's it like that, but it's in real life. Yeah, and it's in in the level of strategy and manipulation from industrial sugar into the political system is it is not haphazard. I mean, it is extremely calculated. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the House <laughs> of Cards thing. My my wife is like, hey, let's you know let's watch a show. We don't see each other much just because we're always on the road. And, you know, it's, you know, we ended up watching a couple different shows, but she, House of Cards, she thought I'd like it. And watched like the first like eight or 10 episodes. I'm like, man, this is like the same shit I have to deal with like all day at work. <laughs> I, I, the last thing I want to do is come home and see actors pretending to do what real people are doing, but <laughs> yes. 10 times worse. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we feel like that every day. You know, it's, it's crazy. I guess one of the easiest analogies that I could kind of draw that I would understand would be it's almost how cartels operate in other countries. That they have a a plan of business and they will identify the people in power who stand in way of that plan or the success of that plan and they'll influence them or eliminate them to get their way in in this case you know where cartels eliminate them they like kill them i guess this is they eliminate them from the political system by putting funds and money behind people to run against them to that will then do their bidding and it's and it's basically a, a very similar type deal is is um you know find out the the people who are going to make the decisions that are going to affect it and influence them to to do it on your behalf and they are very effective at doing that on both sides of the aisle. They don't discriminate whether you're Republican or Democrat or somewhere in between. Um, and they do it from municipal levels and, you know, county commissioners seats through agencies like the water management district, all the way up to the highest office in the country to the presidency. Yeah. And, and that's speaking of the presidency. Um, I think this is, this is just kind of tells you how much power that the, the those companies have do you remember when the bill clinton monica Lewinsky stuff was all going down even in canada i remember that oh, yeah. yes yeah. <laughs> so there was uh the star report was um came out at the time it was an investigation you know into what happened and monica Lewinsky 
was quoted in that she, she testified saying that um, while the president was cutting off ties with her, they were ending their you know quote unquote relationship, whatever you want to call it, in the Oval Office. Uh, he was interrupted with a phone call. He took the call, and it was Alfie Van Hool, who is one of the brothers that owns Florida Crystals, which is one of the, the big sugar companies. So in, in the middle of breaking up with a mistress, he can take the call. And that was about their, their subsidy. They're, they're a subsidized crop. Uh, so, so they have they have got an injury. Yes. And in, in oh. that company, they exiled from Cuba and, and started their, you know, their, their operation here in, in in the Everglades, but they're, they're, it's two brothers that lead the company. One's a Republican, one's a Democrat. They pump all their money into their respective parties and, you know, probably Smart. go home and laugh about it. It's a chess game. Yeah. Yep. And yep. they're winning. And, and, you know, it's, I think it's important they're also anymore, to, not, but they to, were for a long a time. A long time. Yeah. It's important to also note that this isn't like a, this isn't like agriculture in general is this evil thing that's corrupting. It's, it's the industrial level. We have tons of, of friends in agriculture. You know, you got somebody who has a, a small orange grove or, you know, has cattle or grows timber yeah, or vegetables. a lot of vegetables. them are some of the best stewards of the land. Exactly. I mean, some those people are, are literally are the best stewards of the land. And those aren't, and those people, they don't, they don't have the ability to influence tens of millions of dollars in the political system any more than we do. It's that industrial level where these people have taken it and just – built into this this machine that is almost unstoppable that can control legislation and control policy that's the threat that's that's the real issue and you know as daniel touched on a little bit is on top of all this they're a subsidized crop that in a nutshell there's imports put on tariffs put on import sugar to bring the, the the floor up to artificially inflate the value of sugar in the United States, then there's basically if if the sugar company can grow X amount of sugar, if they could grow let's just say a million pounds of sugar, and they can only sell five hundred thousand pounds, the government will essentially buy the other that they couldn't sell. They're funded. It's a yes. It's a it's yeah. a, it's it's part of the it's it's part of the farm bill, which is intended as you know food crops, so that farmers in the during the drought and stuff wouldn't go yeah. under if their crops died. Back, back in after the Great Depression, yeah, and, and it was a long, and they're just kind of have yeah, I mean, they're, manipulated this old piece of legislation that that was good, and parts of it are good, but they've manipulated it now to where, I mean, essentially. The tens of millions of dollars that they're putting back in to control the political world is taxpayer money. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, and, and it's it, we've had a surplus. <coughs> we've had a surplus of sugar in the United States every single year for decades now. It's the only crop that we've consistently had a surplus of, and I mean we all know how great it is for our health. So, but uh, if you, you should watch the Netflix, um, I guess a series or a yeah, show. it's called Rotten. Yeah, it's the the season two episode four. Chris is actually. Oh, is that the one that, that does one on um, on Volvo as well? I mean, on Volkswagen as um, well. No, it's no. it's all about food. Oh, uh, okay. Um, okay. I've only seen a few episodes. They have one about avocados. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, they they've done them about honeybees and and like the importance of honeybees. They've they've done about all these things. You know, um, just poultry the, farming. The season two just came farming. Out. It's 
kind of like deep dive into the dark secrets behind industrial. We did an episode about this, and um, it's season two, I think episode episode four. four. It's called A Sweet Deal. Okay. And it tells you about, you know, a, a kind of high-level overview about from the start of the sugar industry, even in other countries, all the way through to almost current day, right. maybe six months ago. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely watch it. What criticisms do you guys get from public? Uh, we really don't get any criticism that's that's legitimate. Um, you know, there, there's since the very beginning. I mean, since since literally the first week, we announced that you know we wanted to, to get involved with this. We had fake news. You know, just just no bylines. Just these you know websites that were you know a lot of them have been shut down since. And just you know personal attacks kind of stuff. But it, it's that stuff it's actually it's helpful for us i mean people see it and they get they get mad and you know want to get more involved just because they see all the negativity yeah it's, uh, and, and there's there there's listen there's fake environmentalists they have fake scientists they have all kinds of people that are just doing it for money and they go after us but nobody listens to them because they're just being paid to yeah, I got an email from somebody or i got a message from somebody when i had done some filming with you guys and they were calling you guys out for something or he was calling you out for something and I, I searched high and low in my inbox for that email. I could not find it. I think he probably sent it in social media. Note for people listening, if you'd like me to read and remember and refer back to what you send me, please don't send it in social media because I can't <laughs> I can't search it in my inbox. Yeah, there's there's a handful of people um, who I'm sure gave you feedback. It's the same half a dozen people that do it all all over the place. Some of them do it as as them. Some some of them have fake profiles. Some of them. There's actually, as Daniel said, fake environmental groups or fake what would appear to be like a news website. There's, I mean, there's a ton of, of this PR resource that's put into, it's amazing. It's not like it's just coming from U.S. Sugar says captains for clean water are full of it. It's no, it's like, it's very elaborate. Um, I would say that the only, it, it's not really a criticism or, or whatever, the, the legitimate thing that we see from a lot of our uh, supporters or people is that they recognize the movement and that we've a achieved in a short amount of time with Everglades restoration. And they look to issues in their backyard that they would like to see us engage on. Um, and which is obviously very understandable. They're, they're going, Hey, look, you guys are doing this great thing for the Everglades. Let's do that. We need this in Mosquito Lagoon, or we need this in Apalachicola or in the Springs or, you know, we have people reach out to us from literally all over the country, from Georgia to the Great Lakes to out here. I mean, so the the common thing is a lot of times is, hey, why aren't you in, engaging on this issue or this issue? And the the answer there is pretty simple: is is one our resource and our, and our time and bandwidth. I mean, we we operate at a capacity level. This is a, a massive undertaking. So. In order to duplicate, that means you have to duplicate everything about what we're doing here. You have to duplicate people who that's their backyard, who have the understanding, who can build that community up. And, and put, there's a ton of resource that goes in behind that. The other is the reason we're effective is because we stay laser focused on always wanting to see this first project that's, again, going to give us the biggest return on investment. And as we go through there, we can start to look at what else we can bring on. But if you go into a policymaker's office 
and you ask them for more than one thing, really. You need to go yeah, in and say, no. this is what I want you to do. You can't go in there and say, I want you to, you know, fix Mosquito Lagoon. And there's so many d- different, you know, some of them, the problems have to be addressed on a state level. Some of them have to be addressed at a, at a municipal level for the town. So that's probably the one thing that I wouldn't say is a criticism, but we, we do get people that reach out to us a lot, wanting us to engage in other issues. And we're definitely sympathetic and supportive of seeing those things fixed, just like we are with Pebble Mine, I guess would be a good example. But we're realistic in the fact that, you know, the ability for us to do that at this point in time just isn't there. I mean, we're a three-year-old organization. So until, who knows, three years from now, we have, you know, 100 people on our staff that can have 10-person teams that are taking on issues in different parts of the country or the world, that's definitely a possibility. But um, one thing at a time, one thing at a time and, and, and not biting off more than you chew or as Chris Peterson from Hills Bay says, you, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And that's, that's, right. that's really kind of the approach that we've taken that we've maintained. What's the public able to do to support you guys right now? So over the next six, eight months, our big push is going to be for federal funding. For Everglades restoration, and and that'll probably really be full swing March April of 2020. So right now, the biggest thing they can do is reach out and talk to ten of their friends about it that that haven't heard about it, because we need people from all 50 states, from every corner of every state. Uh, you know, that's ideally we want each member of Congress to receive dozens of emails from their supporters. So um, yeah, that's that's the big thing right now, just spreading the word on awareness nationwide and. Keep your eyes peeled. Are they paying membership fees? Do they need to reach out? You said to email Congress? Yeah, but we'll have – what we'll do is – membership's great. You know, if people want to be a member, that's awesome. We appreciate the support. Yes. Yep. They can buy a hat. I mean, I'd almost rather somebody buy a hat because then it starts conversation and that's what it's all about. But, yeah, I mean, they don't have to give us any money. They just need to go on, learn more information on our website, and just be ready in March and April when we start hounding you on social media and your inbox and – uh, whatever ways we can come up with to, to get you to wake up, get everybody you know, you know, to, to talk about the problem, talk about it, at, you know, at their job, with their friends, everything they can. Uh, that's what's made the difference to what's gotten us to this point, And that's what's going to you know, continue to advance it. So, yeah, I mean, and obviously, you know, funding and, and funding is, is a huge help to us. But if you were to ask me, you know, hey, would you rather I donate five hundred dollars or talk to five of my friends and get them to to look into what you guys are doing every time we would say get five of your friends the reason why we've been so successful is our ability to grow this kind of army around us we have you know over 130,000 supporters now in in less than 4 years and that's our strength so the the more people can be educated on one, just overview of, of what our efforts are, but two, then kind of keeping um, keeping an eye on what's going on because what we see that we need the public to do today is not the same thing that we're going to need them to do in six months. And there's times where we're not going to need them to do anything except continue to go out and talk to people. And that's a, a big, you know, the hats have kind of been like become like our symbol again unintentionally it wasn't like we're going to create this hat and it's going to be the icon of of our organization 
we just did it because we're fishermen and we wear hats. But now it's, you know, we go to, to Washington or to Tallahassee and, you know, like, oh, the hats are in the building and the hats and beards are here, you know, or whatever. So, but, it, but the hats are a reminder to you when you put that hat on in the morning is, hey, you know, when someone asks me about this, there's a responsibility that comes with wearing our hat. And that is when someone asks you about it to take the time to say, yeah, there's this issue with the Everglades and these guys are fighting to save it. And um, that's probably the most valuable thing that people can do, especially people like yourself who have the ability um, throughout your networks to reach a lot of people. The more people we can reach, and especially the more new people we can reach, the greater our ability to, to drive policy you know, more effectively. And, and that comes, as Daniel's saying, you know, right now that into, into the spring is going to be into the big push for federal funding. So that's where the other 49 states really play a key role because obviously the Florida delegation is going to want to see federal funds come to Florida to fix Everglades, but it's a long way. It goes a long way when, you know, we're here in Colorado and the legislature in Colorado is supportive of putting federal money to saving the Everglades. You guys have your work cut out for you. We do. (laughs) Um, Is there anything that you want to, I mean, it's a lot to digest. Is there anything that I've missed that you really wanted to add? I would, I would just say that one, it is a lot to digest. I don't think anybody's going to be able to sit and listen to this podcast and go, okay, well, I get it. And so, um, I hope that by listening, they would be interested or intrigued enough to, to try to learn more. You could spend a fair amount of time searching around our website and, and educating yourselves to, to really have a, a pretty up to date understanding of, of what's going on and what we're doing. And then the key is is also just staying engaged, not thinking that because we had a call to action, you know, last year to email Congress and tell them to pass the water resources bill. Oh, yeah, I sent that email. Stay engaged to where when when we need that voice again, you're there. Do petitions work anymore? Uh, they, they have some value here and there. Um, depends how many people you can get to sign them. You know, if you put one out and you only get 2,500 people that sign, it doesn't look very good. If you get 100,000, then you might have the attention of some policymakers. What gets the most attention? Sending letters or or actually walking into the location physically? Uh, a, a little bit of both. It's it's the number of people. You know, For something like, like federal funding campaign, it's going to come down to the number of people that we have that sent messages or phone calls, whatever, uh, that that's pretty big. Uh, but at the end of the day, the only thing people really need to know is that over the last 20 years, we haven't seen progress because there's people and, and interests that are putting roadblocks in wherever possible to slow it down. Uh, we talked about some of that. The reason we have seen progress in the last three and a half years is because so many people are getting involved in some capacity, whether it's just one email a year or you know, making a part of your daily life to tell everybody you know about Everglades restoration. That's what's making the difference. We're going to be busting our ass at Captains for Clean Water. We're not going away. We'll be here, but the future of the Everglades is 100% in the hands of all of our supporters. If they take this and, and, and take up the fight with us and, and they're here, this problem will get fixed. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 